2: Hi, I'm Gabrielle Jackson coming to you from Wiradjuri Land, and this is the full story. Today, The Guardian's Global Editor-in-Chief, Catherine Viner, talks to Today in Focus host Nosheen Iqbal about the stories that shaped 2023. Are they trapped inside the wreckage of the Titanic? That's the fear today as the Titan submersible remains lost.
3: Smoke and gunfire hang over Sudan as the Sudanese military and a paramilitary group battled for control of the chaos-stricken nation.
4: The World Meteorological Organization today confirmed that 2023 is set to be the warmest on record. Prince Harry's much awaited autobiography is spare. The book has now become UK's fastest selling non fiction
0: book ever.
3: At the presidential palace, one sound filled the night air Recep Tayyip Erdogan. After 20 years in power, he's about to embark on five more.
4: A year is a long time in news. You might remember 2023 for the COVID inquiry. For a Tory party sinking, even further down the poles. The humanitarian disasters in Morocco, Turkey, Libya, and beyond. You might have forgotten some of the more bizarre moments that seem to catch everyone's attention.
1: UFO whistleblowers testifying on Capitol Hill that the United States has been in possession of non-human craft since the 1930s.
4: The sycamore once crowned the best tree in England hiked to pondered at proposed in front of was last night deliberately felled
1: killer whale a sailor's worst nightmare a full-grown orca rams a boat off the spanish coast
4: but how has this year played out in the newsroom and what's 2023 looked like for the guardian and observers editor-in-chief
3: well, Nasheen, it's been intense, I have to say. It's been an incredibly internationally focused year and we are getting used to an extremely intense pace of news these days.
4: From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus. Behind the scenes with Catherine Viner on the year's biggest news stories.
3: So of course straight away Saturday morning the phone's ringing off the hook and I think it was quite clear quite quickly how serious it was.
4: On October 7th Hamas's attack on Israel stunned the world and catapulted the region into a devastating war. For Catherine Viner the day began with a series of quick decisions needing to be made.
3: We've got a fantastic international team who cranked into gear. We've got a terrific Jerusalem correspondent already in place. We put together a WhatsApp group. And so what we think is, who do we deploy? Who do we get out there? Who's on desk? And the desk, which is what we call the team of editors, something they think about really, really carefully is how do we make sure that people are looked after and are kept safe.
4: And of course, on the world stage, the Israel-Gaza war has been one of the most difficult stories of the year
0: and as fighting rages all around the hospital, time is running out for dozens of premature babies whose incubators can't run without power.
3: Racing into his father's arms, Ohad, who was released yesterday, followed by his mother, Karen, and his grandmother, Ruti. Three generations who were held hostage, Ruti's husband still is.
0: Two months after militant Islamist group's terror attack on Israel, there's mounting evidence of extensive rape and sexual violence on that day.
4: What have been the key challenges when it comes to covering this conflict?
3: I think the biggest challenge is how hard it is to report from Gaza. The fact that reporters can't go in except embedded with the Israeli military. And so we've been very dependent on people we know in Gaza. We've got a fantastic Gaza diary. We've got six former... Jerusalem correspondents who still work for The Guardian, deep Middle East expertise. They're in different roles now and some of them have been out to report since October the 7th. And if they haven't, they're sort of doing great contextual work. We all know that Israel-Palestine is one of those stories that you only really understand if you understand many years of history. You can't just come in now Mm. and think you get it. So I think what we've tried to do is try and help readers understand what's going on, not to take a polarised view, but to give a really contextualised understanding using this deep expertise. The human stories of the civilians, I think, is a sort of key entry point for us.
4: Can you tell me about some of those stories, about an example of something from our coverage that really stayed with you?
3: So there was an amazing video out of Gaza that just followed a seven-year-old girl, her daily life, living in a sort of tent canopy, trying to go and get water, now, under very extreme circumstances but still being very recognisably a seven-year-old girl could be been in any circumstances and I found that very powerful.
4: <laughs>
3: and we've been looking at how disturbing the terrorist attack of October the 7th was on Israeli society, really, as well as the sort of Israeli psyche, Um, these attacks on young people at a music festival or people living in a kibbutz and the sheer number of people killed that day in a small country and how long it was before the security services arrived. One of our reporters, I think it was a month after the October the 7th events, went back to one of the kibbutz that had been attacked and talked about what she saw there. And that was very powerful as well. I think all the reporting of the situations of the hostages. Of course, we've also been looking at what happened next, the extreme bombardment and destruction of people and infrastructure and society that's going on in Gaza. And I think what we try and do is try and help give empathy to all civilians who are caught up in these situations.
4: On today's Focus, we have spoken before about the safety of journalists on the ground there. We've spoken to Hazan Balusha in Gaza about his experience that, earlier
2: this month. You know, losing the family while you're at work make you feel guilty because you left them behind. But this is a struggle, whether I should stay at home with the family or go and continue in my mission and, and keep covering and telling the stories about Gaza.
4: This has been the deadliest period for journalists in 30 years. Do you think the press fest means as much in war zones as it once did?
3: I think we've always been very wary about the protection of what a press vest can do to you, to be honest. I think, you know, we were very, very careful about who we deploy and where. I think journalists still working in Gaza are operating in almost unimaginable circumstances. Many of them have lost their lives trying to tell the world what's going on. And I think many of them have done some extraordinary reporting that we've tried to reflect in our coverage as well, because I think it's the only way where you can really get a sense of what it's really like on the ground. It's very frustrating for journalists that they can't get into Gaza. Mm. And we would rather The Guardian made the decision about whether to send reporters in or not rather than the IDF banning people from going in. A dam breach in the Russian held area of Ukraine has sparked a growing humanitarian and environmental emergency with flooding impacting dozens of towns and villages.
1: We begin with breaking news. Russia's state media now confirming that Wagner mercenary group leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin has died after a business jet he was on crashed about hundred miles northwest of Moscow. Summer was supposed to bring huge gains for Ukraine. But within days of it beginning, the counteroffensive was in disarray.
4: We are also now in the second year of the Russia Ukraine war. I guess the risk with a conflict that has gone on for a long time is that it can be difficult to keep readers and listeners engaged and to keep humanizing the horror of what's unfolding
3: there. How do you think our coverage has done that? Yeah, I recognise the challenge that you talk about, Machine. but I also think with Ukraine, we've done this great reporting on the sort of dilemmas of men of conscription age. What does a war going on this long do to the fabric of society and to its leadership on art in war and the relevance of that to the conflict? I think of the story of a writer who was killed in a pizza restaurant who several of our reporters had spent time with and were very affected by her death. It's obviously a hot political issue in the US election next year. And I think the fact that we've really stayed committed to our coverage of Ukraine, live longing it, people on the ground, I think our readers have really responded to that and we've tried to show a different texture to the war. It's obviously at a different stage.
4: Catherine, after years of research into the 1821 founding of the Manchester Guardian, in 2023 the Guardian published the Cotton Capital editorial project across print, audio and video, tracing the links between the Guardian's founders and their relationship with transatlantic slavery.
3: When we think about America and slavery, we think about the violence, the lynching, the Ku Klux Klan, all of that
1: terrible imagery, what we don't think about are the mills of Manchester. And of Lancashire,
3: but they are just as connected, just as integral to the story of slavery and cotton as the slave markets of New Orleans.
4: Could you tell us how the research into John Edward Taylor came about?
3: In 2020, the big pandemic year, which was also the Black Lives Matter year, the toppling of the Colston statue, it felt like a good time for The Guardian to look into our own history. We've got David Olshogga, who sits on the Scott Trust, and he is a fantastic British historian who's a real expert on black history and slavery, among many other things. So he helped drive that forward. And I think it took us about two years. We commissioned some brilliant historians to look into it Since we'd always known that The Guardian was founded by cotton merchants in Manchester in 1821, which was the capital of the cotton trade globally, Mm. it was sort of hiding in plain sight. And what the historians discovered was that John Edward Taylor and most of his backers had economic links to transatlantic slavery through their commercial interests in cotton. And yeah, it was a very shocking thing to discover, even if it had been hiding in plain sight all along.
2: As the
4: editor... How did it feel when you found out?
3: I remember the moment, actually. And it was an awful moment, to be honest, although we sort of suspected it to have it confirmed. One of the funders was an enslaver of people himself. He wasn't just connected to the slave trade. He was co-owner of a plantation in Jamaica. So it was a sort of heart-stopping moment, to be honest.
4: The Scott Trust announced a series of reparative justice measures in response to the findings. Can you tell me more about those?
3: This is a big reckoning, and we wanted to give it the sort of scale and seriousness that it deserves. The following response is on a few fronts. The first is more historical research. We want to see if there are more links. We're doing some work in the Sea Islands and Jamaica and possibly also Brazil. Then there is internal investment to try and drive greater diversity at The Guardian. And that's been very exciting. We've hired some of those jobs already. So that's jobs on racial justice. It's more coverage of the Caribbean and of Africa community affairs in the UK and the US but having spent time looking at how people deliver reparative justice I think if you just do it to yourselves Mm. I'm not sure that's ever really enough so we've established a reparative justice fund this is a 10 year project it is at least 10 million and we are talking to the relevant communities about how to spend that and we've hired a fantastic person to run that programme for us because one thing we've really learned about this is that just saying that this is what we will deliver liver Mm. isn't really the right way to do it. The right way to do it is to start with the communities and see what's needed. So how has all this changed The Guardian? So what we're trying to do over the 10-year project, I think it is to change the makeup of The Guardian. We are much more diverse than we ever were, but still not diverse enough at the highest levels. And I think we can definitely change that over the 10 years. And I think it also provides a lens on everything we do now, actively changing lots of the decisions we make across all of our editions as we expand internationally.
4: Catherine, this year the Guardian spent some time closely looking at the monarchy. It was the year of King Charles's coronation, with him having finally ascended the throne at 74 years old. God save the king! God save
1: the king!
4: And it is fair to say we covered that event quite differently from other media outlets. And the Guardian took the opportunity to publish their investigation into the cost of the crown for the taxpayer, What struck you most about what was uncovered?
3: Huge global interest in this story, you know, Nasheen. We always said when the Queen died, it was a much anticipated event. Mm. And everyone thought that there would be a really informed conversation and debate about the future of the monarchy in the wake of the Queen's death. And it never happened. And it seemed important to us then in the run up to the coronation to show the true cost of the royal family Mm. and to highlight some of the archaic ways in which it draws money from the public purse. So one of the things we revealed is how official gifts have become private. private property for the royals. And there was also an interesting crossover with this project when we uncovered hitherto unknown links between the royal family and slavery, Mm. prompting the palace to back research into the subject for the first time. In an unprecedented statement from Buckingham Palace, King Charles today signalled his support for research into the royal family's historical links with the slave trade. It follows the publication of a document showing that William III received shares from a Bristol-based slave trader. Probably the thing that struck me most and that has never been revealed before, which is that we managed to put together a estimate, a reasonable estimate for what the king's personal fortune is. And it's £1.8 billion. Believe it or not, that has never been revealed before. And I think it sort of symbolises this veil of secrecy that's shrouded over the royals. They're completely untouched, it seems, for this kind of accountability reporting.
4: It's a story the Guardian is still pursuing. I mean, just last month, we revealed the archaic customs that were allowing the king to profit from the assets of people who die without next of kin or a will in the northwest of England.
3: What impact do you think these stories have had? It's an unbelievable story, isn't it? I mean, you couldn't make it up. Well, I mean, with that case, King Charles' estate announced almost immediately that it was transferring more than £100 in investments, which included funds collected from those dead people under Mm. that crazy archaic system into ethical funds, Mm. which just shows the impact of such reporting. Again, because nobody else has done it before. It's never been done before.
4: Well, reporting on the royal family in Britain often takes, I mean, let's just say a more uniform deferential tone. Why is it so important for the Guardian to keep scrutinising the monarchy?
3: The monarchy in Britain has more power than people realise, a lot more money than people realise. And I think these stories hit home because the individual cases are so shocking and they chime with this general sense of an ongoing veil of secrecy and, as you said, deference that is maintained around the royals and their money. They're extremely well protected by the British media and British society and it's important for us to stand against that. Chat GPT.
1: Maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, then get ready. Because this promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. World leaders have attended a global summit in the UK dedicated to analyzing the benefits or potential risks
4: of artificial intelligence.
0: In the future, are you intending to conduct a rebellion or to rebel against your boss, your creator? I'm not sure why you would think that. My creator has been
4: nothing but kind to me and I am very happy with my current situation. Catherine, 2023 has been a huge moment for the development of artificial intelligence. AI is the Collins Dictionary Word of the Year. It's pushed its way into the mainstream to become the buzzy conversation topic of the moment. What is the moment that you thought this is actually going to change our society?
3: I'm not sure I know the moment for myself, but I know a story that hit home for a lot of readers, was a piece we did spending a week with ChatGBT saying, can it make me a healthier, happier, more productive person? It asked questions like, can it tell me why my neck feels funny? Uh, Can it tell me what's wrong with my sick child? Can it invent a new Ottolenghi recipe, extremely controversial? Can it mix me a kumquat cocktail? And I think what was revealing about that is that, yeah, it could do quite a lot of those things. Um, Not necessarily as well as we're doing it ourselves, but as a shortcut. And it could be really, really good. It could save us doing really boring bits of work, boring bits of life admin. But there are lots of risks as well. And the concern is that the people developing AI, many of them aren't so engaged with what the risks are because they are just trying to outrace each other to the financial prize by the way something very interesting we did two big projects on AI one is like how could it be brilliant and another one how could it be terrible and we launched them at the same time of day in the same slot on the website and you know that the one that was about how AI is going to destroy the world got much bigger traffic than how it's going to make our lives better which tells you something about well
4: it tells you about the audience and the readers doesn't it when they always say give us happy news but actually we're just looking for do.
3: Or perhaps how we're frightened about AI, because it is frightening because it's such a big shift if everything they say will happen happens. You know, we're quite attached to our lives, mm. quite attached to being human, frankly. Yeah. And I think lots of the new future that we're all imagining is much better as long as a human is in the process. And I think that's the bit we need to try and fight for as humans.
4: A moment that stood out to me is when I saw that image of the Pope wearing a white Balenciaga puffer jacket. Right,
3: this is crazy. So
1: over the weekend, we may have experienced the first major AI photo hoax. It all started with an absolutely sickening pic of Pope Francis.
4: Well, obviously that example is quite funny, but it does show the risk of disinformation with AI is pretty high. So. As an editor of a massive news organisation, what worries you about that? And also, what do you find exciting about it?
3: I'd say there's not very much exciting about putting the Pope in a Balenciaga puff jacket, except it's, except it's funny. It's a great meme. And I think if it was clearly labelled as AI or as a fake image all along, fill your boots, that's absolutely fine. I think the problem comes when you try to convince people that... An image is real when it's fake and bad actors, manipulative politicians, people with untrustworthy motives could really use AI to bad effect. And our job as journalists is to try and make sure that we don't fall for those call them out when we see them. There was an audio of Keir Starmer swearing at a colleague, which was fake. But they are getting better all the time and they're harder to see. And I think a big part of our job is saying that we'll do that work for you. Social media will be full of misinformation. It already is. We haven't talked about X in this podcast, but it's now gone into extreme decline, hosting many far-right and fake news sites. I just recommend people get off it, to be honest. I certainly have. And instead, rather than looking at social media, is go to a site that you can trust like the Guardian because we are transparently funded we have standards and ethics and codes that we follow that means we are trying only to find out what's true and we will tell you if you think something isn't true and if we find out something we thought was true isn't we will immediately correct it and tell Mm -hmm. you that we've made a mistake I've noticed some news organisations have been using AI to sort of churn out endless stories that are really badly written Mm -hmm. and hard to follow and using it as a way to replace journalists. And I think that's exactly the wrong motive. I think you've got to start with what would be good to help your audience and work back from there.
0: This
1: is what climate breakdown really means, warned politicians across Europe today as parts of roads smolder. The hottest summer ever, no rain then. The wind.
3: We begin in Libya, where there are fears that the number of people who've died in the catastrophic floods there could reach as many as 20,000.
1: And good evening from here in Maui, where we have just learned that this is now the deadliest wildfire in
4: modern US history. Under your editorship, The Guardian has made the environment one of our key reporting priorities. Now, This year has been the hottest year on record. I feel like I'll say that every year. There have been an endless series of awful extreme weather events. What is important to you when it comes to the way we cover the climate?
3: I mean, we do cover it relentlessly and remorselessly and we consistently put more resource into the environment than anybody else into climate but also nature we had a big focus on nature this year we've done great projects like the great carbon divide on the sort of inequity and who's actually causing the climate crisis Mm. and so we revealed how the richest one percent are responsible for more carbon emissions than the poorest 66 percent worldwide and that 12 of the world's richest billionaires are responsible for for nearly 17 million tons of greenhouse emissions. Basically, if you ban private jets, you would really make a big impact on the climate crisis overnight. That's a uh, some new pe- campaign. Yeah, I mean, uh, you might say it's class war, but I just say it's caring about the environment.
4: But in terms of what our readers and listeners experience, what makes The Guardian's climate
3: coverage stand out? We prioritise it so it'll be much higher up on the front page of our website or the front page of our newspaper or Guardian Weekly or so on. But also when you mention it's something like an extreme weather event, we don't just say, oh gosh, there's all these floods everywhere, isn't it awful? Mm. We try and show what caused it. We try and show that this event was much more likely because of the climate crisis. And we also use different language from others. We try not to use climate change. We talk about the climate crisis climate emergency instead we talk about global heating not global warming and so on another distinctive thing is how seriously we think about photos so when it's a heat wave most news organizations will have images of sex people on a beach Mm, (laughs) or sometimes not very sexy people on a beach always the ice cream kids jumping in fountains joyous scenes basically and i think unfortunately that isn't the way most people experience extreme heat, and it certainly isn't the way that the planet is experiencing it. So we try to show, I'm not sure all photography agencies have got on board with this, but we try to show the flip side of that. There's lots of joyous things that we can feature in other contexts, but I think probably in this one, we want to really show the reality of what's going on.
4: Well, the United Nations has warned that we are facing the, and I quote, hellish scenario of a planet warming to three degrees above pre-industrial levels. Climate scientists propose that this will mean catastrophic drought, irreversible damage to the planet and desperate numbers of climate refugees. How do you keep hope as an editor and as a reader or listener?
3: I think, journalistically, we just sort of say, right, if we're leaning in and doing all the reporting we can, that makes a difference. I think showing innovations and things that are working, you know, so for example, we did a fantastic piece that went very, very viral about heat pumps in Norway and how ordinary they are, accepted they are, uncontroversial they are, which showed up then anybody's sort of saying that heat pumps are controversial. That's from political campaigning against them. They're just mm-hmm. a sort of straightforward solution in Norway. I think the fact that our journalism on the subject is Reaching enormous audiences, I think that's hopeful too. I think more and more people are engaging with it.
0: What do we want? And you
3: what know, and I see want? young climate campaigners. They're sort of passionate and they're resourceful, and they inspire us as well. And in Montana today, a landmark court
1: decision: a judge siding with a group of young people who accused the state of violating their rights by supporting fossil fuels.
3: But it's not easy. Mm. It's not easy.
4: Catherine, this year The Guardian launched a
3: new Europe edition online. Can you tell me more about why? It's interesting because we've already got a large audience in Europe, even before we launched our new edition. They're very engaged. They loved our Brexit coverage in particular, but we'd never actually done an edition for Europe. And I think what we're hoping to do with it is to showcase the Guardian's journalism to our European audience that's about Europe, but it's also about the world, and then show the rest of the world all the interesting things that are happening in Europe, whether that's the news events, sport features. We launched with a project looking at the extent of toxic air across Europe with an interactive map. It showed that 98% of people in Europe, that's really nearly all of us, live in areas with highly damaging fine particulate pollution. That's pretty extraordinary. And you could put your town in anywhere you were in Europe and see what your town or village was like. And, you know, we've been doing this great project called Eurovisions, where we talk about inspiring ideas from around the continent, which the rest of the world has really enjoyed as well. And just one more thing I wanted to mention, which is that Guardian Australia celebrated its 10th birthday this year, and even though it's only 10 years old, it's just impossible to imagine the Australian media without it now.
4: It's a stressful job, but what have been the fun moments
3: of the year? What have you enjoyed the coverage of? I'd say number one on that would be the Women's World Cup. I love the way it broke through across the world. We've got US and Australia editions and they also have fantastic football teams. I think the thrill of seeing powerful athletic women playing brilliant football, massive crowds, great celebrations, I think I'll never get over that really. Obviously, I wish England had won, but really it was an absolute joy and we threw ourselves into it. We even launched, Nasheen, as you know, a dedicated women's football podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. Highly recommended.
4: Hello, I'm Faker Rothers, and welcome to the Guardian Women's Football Weekly. The bullies are out as Arsenal dominate Chelsea in front of a record crowd. Coming up. How does an editor plan for a bumper election year around the world?
0: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your
1: perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics, so they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Borough order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
4: 2024 will, of course, mark a major political year. We expect a general election in the UK and a presidential election in the US, both possibly in the space of the same month. What is The Guardian going to prioritise in its coverage?
3: So I think it's really important with political coverage anywhere that we don't get too obsessed with the sort of horse race, who's up, who's down, the latest poll. And we try and find out what's really going on on the ground, what people really think and why they're moving in a certain direction. We've got a great legacy with our projects such as Anywhere But Westminster, Anywhere But Washington, The View From Middletown and so on. And it's trying to sort of get the human stories while also factoring in the high stakes. I think this sort of global anxiety about the American election in particular that Donald Trump might get back in and trying to understand what those stakes are and trying to understand why anyone could vote for him at this point, especially after what happened last time. I think there is global anxiety about all sorts of things, mm. possibly driven ultimately by the climate crisis and the fact that nobody is quite getting to grips with it despite the recent outcome of COP. You know, nobody really feels that it's being dealt with in a proper way. Nobody is really getting elected on a platform of sorting it out. So I think there's an interesting item that we've started doing called How We Survive, Mm. a great features project, which is people who survived in the Andes in a plane crash, but also people who survived sort of extreme emotional challenges and so on. And And that series is extremely popular. And I think that tells us something about the times we're in. The mindset. Yeah, I mean, I think we're all looking for ways to survive, whether that's actually or psychologically. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Nasheen. What a year.
2: That was The Guardian's Global Editor-in-Chief, Catherine Viner, speaking with Today in Focus host, Nasheen Iqbal. This episode was produced by Courtney Yusuf and Solomon King. Additional production by Camilla Hannan. The executive producer is Elizabeth Casson. That's our final episode of Full Story for the year. Next week, we'll be revisiting some of our favourite full stories from 2023. And then we present a special summer series, The Tale You Dine Out On. It's a bunch of funny and warm-hearted anecdotes from people you may know, about the stories they hold dear to their hearts. People such as Rhys Nicholson, William McInnes, Yumi Steins, Wendy Harmer, and Wesley Enoch. It's a really enjoyable, fun listen. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. We'll be back with new episodes of Full Story on the 15th of January. Until then, from all of us here at Full Story, we wish you a lovely and safe holiday season.